Welcome to Adaptify. I'm Mike, I'm a paraplegic from New Zealand, and it's my mission to find the Adaptifiers of the world. People who have overcome challenges and found new, creative, interesting ways to be free despite needing to use a wheelchair for their mobility. Hey there everyone, welcome back to the Adaptified Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. If you're new here or you haven't visited our website for a while, check out Adaptify.com where you'll find all our previous interviews and their Adaptifier profiles. You'll also learn more about our broader vision to increase freedom for the adaptive community. And you can also purchase a lap stacker and learn more about our other products that are our contribution to increasing freedom for this adaptive world that we're in. Today's guest is Derek Herrera. Derek is a former Marine Special Operations Officer who was shot while in duty in Afghanistan. What a crazy situation. I look forward to uncovering how he navigated his way through that situation as a T6 paraplegic. Derek's also an entrepreneur. He studied business after his spinal cord injury and is now working on a company he founded called Spinal Singularity to create medical technology to improve the lives of people with bladder issues, such as uh, people with spinal cord injuries. Man, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show here, Derek. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Hey, Derek. So first off for our listeners, uh, how did you end up as part of this uh, adaptive community of ours? So I was previously serving in the military uh, as a Marine infantry and special operations officer. So I was a, what we call a Marine Raider. And, uh, when I was serving, uh, in Afghanistan with my team was shot, uh, during an enemy firefight, uh, and was paralyzed from the chest down. And so in the moment that I was injured, uh, the bullet went through my shoulder into my spine at the T6 level. And, uh, that was June 14th of 2012 and I've been paralyzed uh, from the chest down since that day. So in that moment, what, I mean, obviously you're shot in battle. You're, you're pretty lucky to be alive. I imagine if you get shot, you're, um, you're, you're fearing not only for, for your injury, but for, for your life. So in the moments after that, how did you, how did you get out of the, the sort of combat zone and, and, um, and get, get medical help, you know, straight away? Yeah, it was a very chaotic situation. And so, we were obviously well-trained and well-prepared for these types of eventualities. And we knew what we would be facing when we went to uh, deployed to Afghanistan. And so in the moments after that, I basically slumped over and realized nothing was, was working below my chest level, called my teammates on the radio and they quickly sprung into action. And uh, they did some pretty heroic feats and, and some incredible uh, things in order to save uh, my life and the life of another Marine who had been shot and injured as well. And so he was actually uh, another one of my, my Marines, a sergeant was shot through the neck because both of us were on the rooftop at that moment. And so right after that happened, uh, we were still encountering enemy fire and, uh, and we're trying to get us off of the, the battlefield. And so our medics worked to stabilize us while the rest of the team was working to uh, fight the enemy and repel the enemy attack in order to allow the helicopters, the medevac helicopters to come in and evacuate us from the zone. And so it was a pretty uh, interesting and, and chaotic time. Uh, had a lot of different feelings at that moment. 
Um, but as you mentioned, I was just really happy to, to be alive and was really fortunate to, uh, to have made it out of that situation, uh, as, you know, with, with my life. And so, uh, so that was kind of the, the challenge that we faced in the way that I felt at that time. So after you were medevaced, where, where did you go there? Did you, did you obviously go back to some, some base or something that, that you had in, in Afghanistan? Yes. Yeah. I was immediately evacuated to a, uh, base, a joint base called, uh, uh, Camp Bastion, which was a joint, you know, uh, coalition base with, with, you know, international forces and U S forces there. And so I was evacuated there. Once I'd gotten on the helicopter, I believe I was given some medicine. So I, uh, you know, was basically put under, uh, and so I arrived at the, the hospital and kind of woke up and I woke to a doctor who was telling me, you know, Hey Derek, you've been shot and you're paralyzed and you may never walk again. And I just kind of looked at him and said, you know, I know. And then we kind of stared at each other for a little bit and said, uh, you know, and I was like, well, has, has anybody told my wife? Uh, he said, no. And so I kind of looked at him again. I was like, well, give me a, give me a phone so I can call her. Uh, and so then I called her and, and told her, um, which was incredibly challenging, but, uh, made the call and was just happy to be alive to make that call. Cause, uh, unfortunately a lot of my friends, uh, who I've served with, with didn't have that opportunity, uh, because they'd been, been killed in action. And so that was my, uh, my initial stop after I was injured. And then shortly thereafter spent a few days, uh, I was immediately transported to Germany to a uh, medical center there. Uh, and then spent a couple of days before I could be, uh, transported back to the U S and arrive back in the U.S. a few days later uh, at a hospital in, in Bethesda, Maryland. So does uh, the, the Marine Corps have their own hospitals for, for spinal cord injury and this sort of thing, or uh, are they uh, hospitals that other, other uh, civilians go to as well? Uh, not exactly, yeah. So the Marine Corps um, and the Army and the Navy and the Air Force all, all have joint hospitals. And so where I went to in, in Bethesda, Maryland, was a place called the National Naval Medical Center. but uh, but that was also a place where a large majority of the combat injuries would go for their initial care. Um, I spent about seven days in that hospital and then was transferred to what's called a veterans affairs hospital, which is a hospital that's specifically for, you know, for, for former military service members and, and veterans. Uh, and so the reason I was transferred was because people with spinal cord injuries, don't typically stay in the military. And so the military doesn't maintain uh, those types of assets and those re rehabilitation settings. Mm. Uh, and so they send that out to the VA hospitals, the veterans affairs hospitals. And so to get to a spinal cord injury clinic, uh, I went to the Tampa, uh, Florida, the VA hospital in Tampa, Florida. Um, and that was where there was a, a large spinal cord injury clinic. And that's why we, you know, despite I, I lived in California at that time, I was stationed in California, but uh, but chose to go to to that because that was one of the larger uh, clinics for spinal cord injury. Hey, so Derek, what what sort of things were you into? Obviously, you're you're a fit fit guy. You're you know trained in the military. Uh, but what sort of things did you enjoy prior to your um, accident? I enjoyed a lot of uh, athletic activities. So a lot of uh, you know running and jogging, uh, swimming um, lifting weights, a lot of those different types of physical activities. A lot of my persona and my identity was, uh, built around some of the, the physical activities that I was, 
uh, able to do. And that was a large part of my life because it was, you know, part of the job uh, of being a Marine and being able to, to physically handle some of these, these tasks that we were asked to do. So that was a, a big portion of my life. I also liked yoga and martial arts and jujitsu and those sorts of things. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was kind of the, uh, the different types of activities that, that I used to, to enjoy. So it's really interesting you touched on there around identity. It was, it was part of your identity and <clears throat> I was the same, you know, I was fit and active and I was sort of a, what you call a, an adrenaline sports sort of guy. And that was my identity. It was what I was known as and a spinal cord injury and accident like what we've had really um, impacts that identity. And, and in some ways you, you find yourself in crisis trying to reevaluate who who you're going to be um, following on from this? What was some of the internal dialogue that was going through your mind around what life might be like uh, following following this? I had a really up and down kind of situation emotionally and psychologically after the injury. So I had you know survived this incident, and so in the initial days in the aftermath of being paralyzed, I initially had a very, very positive outlook, um, a very naively positively outlook too. And so doctors never told me that, you know, I wouldn't walk again. They just said, you know, Hey, it's unlikely, but you know, there's a, if, if any recovery happens, it typically happens within the first few years, um, after your injury. And so we're not going to say you can't walk again, but you know, but you need to be prepared for that. And so, uh, that, that left basically, uh, an opportunity for me to, think, Oh yeah, well, you know, that's fine. I'll just get up. You know, I'm going to get up in six weeks and walk out of here. Mm. Uh, and so I had that, you know, that mindset and I was like, you know, that was what I kept thinking about. I didn't want to embrace the fact that I had been injured and just deal with it. Uh, I still had that naive optimism, I think of, of recovering and being able to walk in and being able to do all of those sorts of things. And so that was good and bad. So it was good because it, it still helped me stay motivated to stay alive. Uh, when I was still dealing with a lot of other things, like I still had a lot of other injuries that I was, you know, battling like, uh, collapsed lung and, and those sorts of things in a chest tube from, you know, where I was shot in the shoulder. Uh, so I couldn't even use my left arm for the first you know month or so very well. Uh, and so naive, that naive optimism kind of helped me propel me through that. But then over time, you know, as days turned to weeks and weeks turned to months, uh, it became more and more permanent to me. And, uh, and that kind of sent me into, uh, a more challenging state emotionally and psychologically. Um, and so I started to, to kind of think about that and, uh, you know, it's really easy to think about all the things that were taken from you, all the things that, you know, your identity used to be, uh, and, you know, uh, and to dwell on those sorts of things. And so, um, that was pretty challenging for me. Uh, and it just took time to kind of, to kind of push through and to get over. Was there anything in particular that helped you get through that moment? What, what would you, what advice would you give to our listeners that may be going through this, something similar? Um, yeah. So the thing that helped me to move forward and to, to continue to push forward was community, I think, and teammates. And so I, uh, had this team and, uh, they, we're still fighting in Afghanistan. And so I was the team commander at that time. And, you know, we, I got injured about six or seven weeks into what was supposed to be a seven month deployment. And so all of those guys were still out there, uh, battling and fighting. 
And that was, you know, frustrating for me because I was, I wasn't able to help them. Uh, you know, I was supposed to be there to lead them and support them. Uh, and they were still out there fighting and I wasn't able to have any impact on them coming home. And so that was challenging to deal with, but it was also good because, uh, you know, it, it was continuing to give me, you know, reasons to continue pushing forward in addition to, you know, my wife and my family and all the other things. But, uh, I feel like the, the worst possible thing or the, one of the most challenging things is, is isolation and, uh, and being alone. And so thinking of communities and families and teams and those sorts of things are the, the things I think that will help, uh, people continue to move forward and to, to rebuild their lives. So you're sort of saying that, you know, don't, don't shut down. You're saying communicate freely with people, let them know how you're feeling so that, uh, so that they can in turn support you where you're needed or, you know, was what, what aspect of the community were you involved in at that point? Were you, were you sending emails and were you, um, you know, talking on the phone with some of your team, you know, what, what specifically helped you, um, in that moment? The things that had specifically helped me in that moment were, uh, staying in contact with those individuals, talking to them. Uh, I didn't talk much at all about emotions or psychological, you know, feelings or those sorts of, of things, uh, which is probably not a great thing. Uh, but that was just, you know, I, I just always have been a person who kind of bottles things up and doesn't always do well communicating those sorts of things. Um, fortunately my wife, you know, was there to help support me throughout everything and, uh, and be there for me. And so, you know, my family was, was there as well. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the basic things that I would do would just be to stay connected with, with friends and family and even the guys that were still downrange on deployment, uh, they would call me from you know, their satellite phones once in a while just to check in and see how things were going. And so that was very helpful to, uh, to continue to propel me forward. And, and the thing that I set my sights on as, as a goal was just, you know, getting back to some state of meaning and purpose and impact. And so even though we were in a special operations unit, uh, we also had, you know, a lot of tasks and administrative uh, duties within our battalion and our unit that that required work. And so, uh, what I did, which was also very helpful, was as soon as uh, as soon as I could, I moved back from the rehabilitation setting back into a work setting uh, because I wanted to contribute. And that was you know mm. that was something that I built a large part of my life around was being able to help people and being able to do something with meaning. And so, instead of sitting in a hospital, you know alone or with people that I didn't know who were all in that setting, I tried to put my mind and get back to something where I could have value, uh, because that was so important to me mentally and psychologically. And so I found a very supportive command. And so all of my senior officers and my commanders were all incredibly supportive. And they said, Hey, if you want to come work, we'll happily put you to work. And so the more time I spent at work with the people that I had, you know, known before and continue to work with, that really helped me to try to you know, move forward and to realize like, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done and I can still help and do things uh, and be of value, you know, and, and have an impact. And so as I was doing that, I was also applying to go back to school. So I applied to go back to graduate school uh, and was accepted to some part-time programs and, and attended uh, business school as part of an executive business, business administration degree. And, and so did, did those sorts of things to continue to move forward and try to rebuild my life. So was the decision to go back to graduate school 
a conscious decision to shift your career focus um, and or was it something that you had always intended to do while you were uh, you know in the military no it was something I had never planned on doing because uh, I just planned on staying in the military forever and you can't stay in the military forever but you know I planned on making a, a long career or staying in as long as I would have been allowed to and so I ended up staying in the military for about eight years total before I had uh, medically retired but you know I would have stayed in for 30 or 40 or however long I could have been of service because uh, I loved what I was doing and I loved the people that I was working with uh, and so very shortly after my injury, I think I was still in Tampa in the hospital. I started looking at, you know, grad pro, graduate school programs and, and business school and that sort of thing. And I didn't really have a plan. I was just, you know, thinking of some of my other friends from college who had now gone back to business school and they said it was fun and had a good time and learned a lot and were able to help transition into the civilian sector. And so I didn't really know initially what that was going to be or what that was going to, you know, what shape that would take. But I just started looking and exploring and researching all these sorts of, of things uh, and then, you know, made the decision to go to the executive, uh, MBA program at, at UCLA and in Los Angeles, California. So how was that as a wheelchair user? What, what, what insights can you share about that? And, uh, and perhaps what, um, what, what positive things can you share with others that may be thinking about going back to study? I had a great time. So I had a phenomenal experience at school. And, uh, as a wheelchair user, there, there really wasn't anything that they were doing that I couldn't do. Uh, and so in the United States, uh, schools and academic institutions are some of the most accessible places here, uh, cause they're all very, uh, conscious and, and, and a lot of their funding is all tied to federal dollars, which, you know, if they have any sorts of, uh, barriers to access. I think they have, you know, serious issues with. So, so I, you know, I had virtually no issues with accessibility, um, uh, going back to school and the entire staff at the, the program was incredibly supportive. Um, all my classmates were supportive. And then, uh, that helped me through that experience that helped me to find entrepreneurship and find passion for the work that I'm doing and, and to learn new skills that would help me become an entrepreneur. Uh, which is what I'm doing now. And so I had a, a phenomenal experience. And and my advice to most people that I talk to now, whether they're injured or not, is to go back to school when they have uh, a good idea of why they're doing it and and what that how that that degree will help them to achieve it. A lot of people here uh, sometimes don't don't really think about that or go back to school just because they can't really figure out what to do. But especially at the graduate level, I think you can only maximize the time and the value of any sort of degree if if you know precisely where you want it to take you. And so I don't, I don't recommend people go back to school just to go back to school. I, you know, I, I think, uh, mm. I think it's really good for you when you know what you want to do. And I, I say that, but I didn't quite know exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew how these tools would help me, uh, when I wanted to enter the civilian world. And so I didn't know that I precisely wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I knew that, you know, coming from someone who studied engineering in my undergraduate degree, I didn't know, accounting or finance or marketing. And so I knew that the skills I would be learning there would, would, uh, would be new to me and would be valuable at, uh, whether I started my own company or not. And so, and so that's my advice generally to people that are thinking about going back to school. So let's talk about entrepreneurship. Uh, when did you have your sort of first entrepreneurial idea that you, you wanted to put into practice? And can you tell us a little bit about that? I think I've had a lot of different ideas, uh, that I wanted to, to practice as an entrepreneur. Um, but really, the the first real company I've started and, and founded, uh, Spinal Singularity, 
uh, started with just an idea. Um, and so what the idea was, was as I was going through school was that there are a lot of unmet needs for people with spinal cord injury. And I started to realize this because that was what I was living. And so whether it was, uh, physical therapy related or mobility related or bowel, bladder, sexual function related. There, there were so many things that are challenges that are unmet needs for the community uh, that we're a part of. And the basic idea that I came to after conducting a lot of, you know, independent research uh, as a user primarily to learn about these sorts of things, whether it was, you know, stem cells or exoskeletons or, uh, or whatever the new technology was, was that a, a combination of new devices and new technologies would provide the biggest and most exponential impact on quality of life for, for people with spinal cord injury. And so that's where the first idea for spinal singularity came from, uh, was that if there was a way to combine these technologies, that it would provide the, the biggest return on, on investment and the biggest impact on quality of life. And so started to do a lot of research on that uh, and put together some business plans and some, some models uh, and have been doing that for about five years now. Uh, and so we started the company uh, about 2000, actually three and a half years ago officially, but all through business school, which is doing the business plans and the research. And so that was the genesis for Spinal Singularity um, and my first real entrepreneurial uh, activity. Uh, and then specifically what we're working on, what we've been focused on initially is just solving uh, some of the challenges associated with bladder management. And so we're working on a, uh, a smart catheter system uh, that's fully internal to the male anatomy and can be wirelessly controlled and allow users to you know, empty the bladder with a push of a button. And so the device is for, for intermittent catheter users or Foley catheter users. Even we've had some clinical studies with uh, suprapubic uh, catheter users anyone who's looking to improve, potentially improve the quality of life for, for those types of, for any adult males with, you know, urinary retention. And so that's kind of the, the first real entrepreneurial idea that I had. And, and that was born out of personal challenges and personal needs. And so the reason that we chose to focus on that was because, uh, and I spent, you know, the past years of my life devoted to trying to solve this issue is just because it was the biggest unmet need that, that I had faced personally. And then the more I dug into it, the more and more I spent researching it, the more I realized that uh, no one really was was working to try to solve the the problem in the way that, that we're trying to solve it. And so that was what kind of inspired me to continue pushing forward and try to make this change. It's so good. I mean, those of those of us with uh, with spinal cord injuries know that that bladder issues are just such a drag you know <laughs> no matter mm-hmm. no matter how you look at it, whatever method you use to manage your bladder it is it is a pain and uh you know geez so it's yeah it's fantastic that you've uh, you've put some energy into this and and with some great success too you've you've raised a you know significant amount of capital you've got a fantastic team by the look of it uh and um you know you're you're, you're making great progress with this what um what's what's next for spinal singularity what uh, what where are you at with, with this device? Where can people learn more about it? And, um, you know, when, when do you think this will be made available to people? Great question. So, uh, so we've been working very hard and we've been very fortunate, uh, to find the team that we have and find the capital and the investors that, uh, that we have. Uh, we've also been fortunate to, to earn some, uh, federal 
grants and federal funding to help support the development and some of the clinical studies uh, that we're doing with this device. And so we uh, started with a napkin sketch uh, a few <laughs> years ago and have turned that into a real device. And so we've tested that device in humans in the U.S. Uh, we did two clinical studies last year, uh, and we actively are enrolling now for our third clinical study. And so uh, this clinical study that, uh, that we're doing now, uh, we're hopeful and optimistic that that will generate the data we need to support both the CE mark approval and the FDA uh, regulatory clearance. And so uh, we're working day and night to try to do that. Uh, and so hopefully uh, the goal is, 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 is before the end of 2019, this device will be CE mark approved. And uh, at some point in 2020, uh, hopefully early 2020, we'll have uh, FDA clearance for the device. And then to answer your question about the the place to learn more, anybody who wants to learn more, they can visit our website. So it's spinalsingularity.com. And uh, and then we also have another website specifically for the clinical study uh, and the device. And that's just connectedcatheter.com. And so if you go to Spinal Singularity website, you'll see some of the notes about our clinical trial. Uh, and then on the Connected Catheter website, there's also a link to our clinicaltrials.gov website, which shows... Uh, a lot of details about the study, all of the sites across the U.S. that we're, we're currently uh, seeing patients at and enrolling. Um, and we're looking to try to uh, find as many adult male catheter users as we can to, to get involved in the study. And so, as I mentioned, they're all across the U.S. Um, and then even internationally, we, even, uh, we don't have any studies going on outside the U.S. currently, but... Uh, but we do have uh, a survey that we're actually running. Uh, and so at the top of our homepage, there's a survey link and a survey button uh, where we're trying to survey uh, users, catheter users, to learn more about you know their needs and their thoughts and their desires. And so there's a short survey that takes maybe maybe five minutes and we're, uh, we're giving uh, $10 Amazon gift cards out to anybody who completes it. So, so they can go there and, and see that. Oh, hey, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to definitely do that. I'm going to, maybe I'll do it with about 10 different email addresses and uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. Yeah. Um, no, it's uh, and, and the one thing that was weird about the website too, I'm, I am not the expert website guy. And so I tried for a long time to figure out the form to do all the international things. Uh, but it still is, is a little bit, uh, you know, buggy, but uh, if you're outside the U S uh, you can just, put some stuff in there and then put your real address or whatever in the notes or make up something for a zip code or whatever, but we'll contact you either way by email or phone, whatever, you know, so just, you can still fill it out. If you're, we're just looking for any, uh, any adult male catheter users, whether you're in New Zealand or the U S or the UK or wherever, just, uh, anywhere in the world, we're looking for input input and, uh, in connections to any adult male catheter users. Yeah. If you're listening uh, and you do use catheters, you're, you're a guy, Definitely go and go and do this thing. You know, the more we can help uh, Derek and others in innovation like this, then uh, the better we all are uh, in the long run. You know, it's it's very expensive to develop things like this. So I know this firsthand, and and man, uh, people often are quite critical about the costs of some of these things. But you know, Derek mentioned the FDA approval process. 
I mean, that is arduous and costly. And, uh, you know, to take an idea and, and create a product out of it is, you know, one heck of a lot of work and dedication. And there's no guarantees that it's you know, going to be a commercial success. It really is, you know, an adventure, you know. It's, it's like you don't, you don't know what the outcome's going to be and you pour your heart and soul into it. And it could be five, ten years of late nights, weekends, you know, putting essentially putting all your focus and energy into something that, you know, may or may not um, work <laughs> or, or come to fruition. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for for those of you out there, you know, I know, I know the lap stacker. There was some comments around the cost of the lap stacker. Well, I mean that you know, it's a simple device, it's a simple concept, but man, it took a lot of effort and time and money to get to this point, and still needs time and effort to to distribute it and to get it out to the people that that need it and uh i suppose the the more that people rally around innovation like this the the cheaper it's going to become and uh, the more readily readily available it is so i mean i take my hat off to you derek and your team for um for tackling this problem it is uh, it's a huge one and you know from what i can see you guys are going to be successful and you're going to make a huge difference in people's lives so uh, so thanks so much no, thank you. It's very complimentary of you, and you're you're absolutely right. It's uh, it's very expensive and very costly, but uh, luckily in America, that's you know, there's the return on investment, and that's the only way that we can justify getting this, you know, millions of dollars from investors to do this is to build a business. Uh, and the coolest thing for me, and the most uh, inspiring thing for me, the reason why I chose to pursue medical technology and medical devices specifically was there's an alignment of interests between the impact you have and the business and the finance side of things. And so the only way that we will be successful with this device is if it really moves the needle and it improves people's lives. And if we do that, then, and the better we do that and the more we do it, the more rapidly we help as many people as possible, the more money the company will make. And so Mm. We hear that a lot of times about costs and this and that and and catheters in the U.S. are, are almost always covered by insurance and so you know insurance costs we will be charging them hopefully the same or less than what they're already paying for catheters but you know it's taken us millions and millions of dollars to get to this point now where we have this device that's safe to use in humans and uh, and we're still not all the way there yet and so uh, that was you know one of the coolest things I found because, you know, as I was going back to business school, a lot of my colleagues and my classmates were all like very financially motivated and there's other industries like, you know, stock trading and whatever else, uh, mm. you know, where it's very simple and very solely focused on making money. And there's not always a, a huge impact uh, associated with that. It's a lot about, you know, the bottom line is profit. And so for me coming from a background of service and, and being more oriented towards purpose, uh, and sacrificing for a, a cause bigger than myself, I would never have been happy or fulfilled at a place where I didn't have that type of impact. And we were just focused on the bottom line and profit and, and finances. Um, and not to say that those people are bad or that that's, that's wrong. Cause it's not, it's just, I chose this route. And the only reason I'm still working in this line of work is because I, I have a sense of fulfillment with, uh, the impact that our, our product will, will have one day. And so the amount of effort and the time and the the pouring your soul into this, like you mentioned, over you know nights and nights and sleepless nights of weeks of work for the past you know five years or however long we've been doing this, will pay off because at the end, if if we can do this, it it could radically change 
catheterization. You know, this could leave a big mark on an industry where there's there's really not much innovation. There's not a lot going on. Um, and most importantly, it could just help a lot of people and, and improve people's lives in a meaningful way. Uh, it's not a cure, right? Like we're not, you know, we're not just going to give you a silver bullet so you can pee again, right? Like in, in a normal fashion. I wish we could, but, you know, what I found in my research is that even the smartest scientists across the world and everybody else are still decades away from doing that. And so in the meantime, uh, we're still trying to improve people's lives in a meaningful way uh, with uh, a relatively simple mechanical device that's that's innovative. So cool. Uh, I, for one, can't wait to give that a shot um, when when you guys make it available over here. So, Derek, what uh, – you know, obviously, the, the future for you is to continue on with uh, spinal singularity and, and make that make that happen. Get through those those processes. What other things uh, are in your future that uh, that you think are worth sharing? That's a great question. You know, I I, uh, I have a tendency to go heads down and just like focus on what's in front of me. So I don't really think too much about anything but this. This is this is all consuming for me. The only other thing that that I know that's in my future, which is is amazing and awesome and uh and has been one of the best joys of my life is uh recently had uh had kids so my wife and i had two boys we had twin boys who are now 19 months old uh and so being a father and getting to raise them and and move forward and to to see them grow uh that's something i definitely look forward to in the future hey you're definitely going to need a lap stack at a to put the two of your boys on your lap. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Carrying them around right now is a little tough. It's, it's, uh, it's hard. I'll definitely have to strap them in. I actually tried to fashion like a uh, hack together, like a Velcro kind of like a, a strap and it, it worked for a little while. Uh, and now they're at the point where they're, you know, they're big as well. They're, they're actually really big for their, for their, you know, for their age and everything, which is cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're, uh, I'll, I'll take all the help I can get to, to strap them in and, and get around. That's so good. My boy, he's 10 now. So he was three when I had my accident and uh, at three, you know, he was on my lap and it was, you know, it was, it was cool. It was manageable. But now he, he still thinks that I'm just a seat that he can, you know, sit on whenever, <laughs> whenever he likes, but he's, he's giant. And, uh, nice. you know, but I, but I, I hold on to that. I'll hold on to that for as long as possible. Right. Because, uh, yeah, they grow up so fast. Well, I'm, I'm super, they put a smile on my face, man. I'm so, so pleased that you're, uh, your father and um, you know you managed to keep your marriage together. Uh, you know a lot of people that that tears a lot of people's relationships apart. Having something like that, so that's you know kudos to to you and your wife for making making that a uh, priority in your life to uh, uh, to work through that. Um, you know, I mean that's that's possibly something some insights you may have uh, to share with others out there. You know, how did you how did you manage uh, keeping your relationship on track? Yeah, that. That's tough. I mean, I was very fortunate that, uh, and I give the majority of the credit, all, all the credit to my wife. Cause she's, she's awesome. Um, you know, and I had other people in the, the hospital where I was other people that had just been injured and, you know, and the other fiancés and wives you know, that for whatever reason couldn't, you know, or, or, you know, couldn't deal with the reality of what was happening and ended up getting divorced or leaving or, or whatever. And so, uh, it's an incredibly, chaotic and challenging time and circumstance. And, um, I I don't even know that I have any real good advice for how to navigate it other than just to continue to, to focus on what brought you together. And, and the fact that you continue to still love each other and that you want to stay together. And so I don't know that it's any different than, I think, I think it's 
it's like a lot of things when you're injured, it's not necessarily different, but it just accelerates. So your injury doesn't necessarily change a lot of things, but it accelerates some things or it accelerates some learnings or, mm. or puts you more rapidly in a different place. And so, uh, you know, it's hard to stay married. I mean, in the U S half of marriages end in divorce as is. Right. And so it's, it's hard to, for people to stay married for long times here anyways, but when you add in the stress or the challenge of, of dealing with these sorts of things emotionally and psychologically, uh, I definitely think it, it creates, you know, more challenges and more problems that, that you may not have anticipated or, or expected. And so, uh, very early on, you know, I came to understand that. And, and I don't know that it's any different than being married normally, but you know, the way I think about marriage advice generally is, you know, you, something that the husband and wife found in each other drove them to make the decision to commit to each other for the rest of their lives. And so once they make that decision, it's not uh, over and done with it. It's a decision you make every day to continue to move forward and continue to be married to someone and to continue to make your, your relationship successful. And so it takes effort, it takes work, uh, and it takes, you know, a renewed commitment and, and, and purpose every day, I think. Yeah, nice. One of the things I I said about early on with my relationship and my wife and I, you know, still together um, following this and was, it actually gave me cause to show her that I could be independent and, and, you know, it it drove me to, I guess, get out of a slump because I didn't want her to, you know, be burdened by my despair. You know, I, I was happy to share how I was feeling, of course, but being able to just show her that I could get on and, you know, go skiing again in a monoski or um, learn to do the things I used to do, it I guess it gave her some reassurance that, yeah, hey, you know, life can be life can be good again. It gave me a reassurance, but it also, you know, reassured her and um, you know, I think that really helped. So, you know, for yeah. people that are maybe down their dumps and, and and maybe feeling sorry for themselves, you know, if you're in a relationship, just, you know, step out of yourself for a moment and think about how the other person's, you know, in your life is feeling and, and, uh, and, and, you know, by reassuring them that and, and comforting them, you, you take the focus off yourself and, uh, and by default, your, your relationship will, uh, find, find a rhythm. And, um, you know, I, I yeah. certainly, certainly found that. Definitely. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it, it gets really easy to sit and, and, think about yourself all the time but uh, yeah that's the last thing you want is to, to drag someone else down with you right and like if you're if you're having those types of challenges or issues and so yeah it's just all the more motivation to to try to you know it honestly i think it made our relationship better you know because now i try even harder to mm. to be you know a better husband every day and a better father every day uh and so we had a good relationship before but if you work through these sorts of things i think uh, you learn more about yourself, you learn more about each other and you, you know, you can even have, have even greater commitments to each other because it forces you to decide, right? Like, like I said, every day you're deciding to be together, but when you encounter these things and you go through these, uh, these challenges, like you, you definitely grow together. It's so good. Hey, so I see you've got a Facebook page link and also Twitter on spinalsingularity.com. Uh, you know, the other places that, um, people can engage with you in a, in a sort of online community setting or are those, those the main ones? Yeah, those are the main ones. And then, uh, we don't do a ton of work on social media. Uh, right now I, I have a lot of like, I'm pretty easy to find on social media for Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn, Twitter and all that stuff personally. 
we're starting to do more now that we're getting closer to commercialization, but, uh, but it's really easy to find us. It's really easy to contact us. You can go to our website and there's you know, a contact contact button where the emails go to us. You can email us at info at spinal singularity.com. Uh, you can message us on Facebook. You can message us on LinkedIn, message us on Twitter. Um, you can message me personally on all those platforms, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. It's real simple to, to get in touch with us. It's not, it's not hard or, or, uh, this was, uh, we've been in business for a while and I just, just recently had time and figured out how to update our Google registration. So we now appear in Google maps. And so, uh, so if you're in the U S and are, are actually looking for our office, you can, you can find it in, in Google maps with Google, uh, for spinal singularity. So, so yeah, so there's a, a lot of different ways to get in contact with us. Fantastic. Derek, it's been absolutely amazing having you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for sharing your journey and for the work you're doing to make uh, an impact in people's lives with spinal cord injury and uh, chronic urinary retention in general. Um, well done, mate. Um, really, really uh, top-notch effort. And um, yeah, I, I for one look forward to coming and uh, visiting your office when I'm in the States, uh, maybe at the end of this year. So um, be sure to be sure to look you up, and, and likewise, if you find yourself down here in New Zealand, be uh, sure to uh, host you and, and make sure you uh, you feel welcome. Absolutely, no pleasure's all mine, and uh, yeah, I look forward to to hosting you here. And and uh, when I go down to New Zealand, I will I will be absolutely certain to to link up with you there. So thank you for this opportunity. Great stuff. All right, well, enjoy the rest of your day, and we'll uh, we'll catch up soon. All right, sounds great. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and meeting today's Adaptifier. To learn more about Adaptify and the products we have in development, products that will increase freedom for wheelchair users, go to adaptdefy.com. That's A-D-A-P-T-D-E-F-Y.com. We're also on all the major social media platforms at Adaptify. Follow us there for more behind the scenes looks and more up-to-date information on product releases. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Look forward to catching you next time.